as usual, God's people, always prone to wander, demand a king. We want to be like all the nations around us. And God allows, not ordains that, their request. And Saul is anointed the first king of Israel. For a time, Saul is blessed by God. There are victories on the battlefield, and people have peace in the land. But Saul turns his heart away from God. He offered sacrifices that only the priest should have been uh, worshiping in that way, offering sacrifices. And Saul, as Pastor Steve pointed out last week, uh, became very unwise and unstable in his leadership, making rash and foolish decisions. So we see that in chapter 15, God has rejected Saul because Saul directly disobeys God. The command to destroy the Amalekites and their king, King Agag. And when Saul is confronted by Samuel, he makes a bunch of excuses and blames the people and he lies to Samuel. So God is finished with Saul. In the last verse in chapter 15, verse 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So as we come to chapter 16, we are introduced to David. David is a major figure in the Bible, as you know. There are 66 chapters devoted to the life of David. We also know that he wrote over half of the Psalms. He was a warrior, a king, an empire builder, and the forefather of Jesus. In the New Testament, one of the titles of the Lord is Son of David. And you've read that as you read through the New Testament. We are privileged this morning to examine the rise of David, a very unlikely hero who toiled in the fields as a shepherd and yet became the greatest king of Israel. Chapter 16 opens with God directing Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint his choice for the next king. And if you'll look with me, and it'll be on the screen behind us, we're going to look at the verses that apply to that, beginning in verse 4. If you have your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammoth pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are there all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we are not 
to sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of God came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramoth. From the reading of this scripture this morning, we see a different process is taking place from the first king, Saul, being chosen and the second king, David, being selected. Saul was a striking specimen of a man. He was tall. He was handsome, above all the other people, and very impressive. His outward appearance appealed to the nation that he would lead, but also fail to lead. Samuel, as he goes and obeys God, is still looking for someone who would make a physical impression, a great impression on people. You, you think he might have learned, but no, same thought process. And he sees Eliab, and he says, this is the guy. God said, this is not the guy. Well, if it's not Eliab, it must be the next guy, Abinadab. He's a very sharp-looking person. God said, no again. Well, let's try door number three, Shammoth. He's the one. God says no. And this goes on until seven of Jesse's eight sons have all been rejected. Finally, after all the obvious choices have failed to impress God, Samuel says to Jesse, is this all you got? Oh, no. There's one other guy, this little guy out in the field. And uh, we'll go get him, the youngest. And uh, kind of noteworthy that David wasn't even invited to the sacrifice. It's like he's not very important. And I would say, uh, just as a side note to parents, the greatest thing you can do is lead your children to salvation. That's your number one job as a parent. The second thing would be to do the opposite of what Jesse was doing, to make sure that your children feel the worth of God's special creation and that God has a place and a plan for them. Jesse didn't do that. And uh, to the surprise of everyone, David is anointed by Samuel. Actually, if you follow Scripture, you know David was anointed three different times. This time before his family, he was anointed before his tribe of Judah, and then he was anointed finally as a king over all Israel in about 12, 15 years from this point. Anointing in the Old Testament was symbolic of God's recognition and his enabling power. It was a special time of ordination, much like we may, as we did several months ago, have an ordination service. We're setting this part, this person apart for the service of God. That's what the anointing meant. It's also worth noting that David was not unattractive. Verse 12 tells us that he was handsome with beautiful features. But that was not the reason that he was God's choice. God's selection was based solely on the qualifications of David's heart. And God makes that very clear in the verse that we read, verse 7. And it needs to be clear to us, the main focus this morning is God looks at the heart. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical nature, 
or stature because I have refused him. Why? Why would God refuse it? Because the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. Man, it's very easy as we look at our society around us, looks at the outward appearance. And it's very true that we spend a great deal of time and money trying to make ourselves look good. We try to impress people with what they see on the outside. There was a survey conducted by YouGov and the Huffington Post that said 25% of men, and I don't get this, but 21% of women spend more than 30 minutes to get ready in the morning. What is your average? I don't know. If they're going out at night, it's another 30 minutes. I don't know where they came up with those numbers, but that's probably true. I can tell you I'm not in that 25% of people that spends 30 minutes. And you may say, yes, we can tell. But uh, maybe 30 minutes a week. Uh, Not only do we spend time, but we're very willing to spend a lot of money on our physical appearance. One of the statistics that I saw from a couple years ago, the cost for cosmetics in this country, try this number, $55 billion. $55 billion. Women between the ages of 16 and 65 average five shopping trips a year for these products and spend an average of $45 each time they take one of those trips. And you can see what's in the basket there. Maybe you see those on your counter at home, gentlemen. We'll leave it at that. Now, is it wrong to care about how we look? Absolutely not. No, because this is a point that's important. Because man does look on the outward appearance, it does matter. It matters. We should care about what others see and the impression we make. Not to bring glory to ourselves, but to be a testimony as we bring glory to God. But I would just say, let me add a biblical perspective to this outward appearance thing. Uh, As we look at the outward appearance, the Bible stresses at least two or three standards that I'll just mention. That we are not to conform to the world's standards. We should not feel pressured into looking like and keep up with every twist and turn of fashion that the fashion industry promotes. We shouldn't feel that that's what we have to do. Secondly, we are to be modest in our dress, not to cause others to stumble with what we're wearing. The last thing I would say is that we should be content with what God has provided. The Bible tells us not to worry about what we eat and drink and what we wear, but consider the kingdom of God as the most important. Most importantly, understand God is more concerned about the condition of our heart than the cost of our wardrobe. Before we examine the specifics of the heart God desires to see, let's take a few minutes to clarify the characteristics of the heart. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, the characteristics of the heart. What do we mean and what does the Bible mean when we say the heart? I didn't know this, but I found it as I was studying. The heart is 
mentioned over 1,000 times in the Word of God, the heart of man. Sometimes, but not very often, it means the physical heart. The physical heart is central to our well-being. The organ that pumps our blood and beats at 80 beats per minute, that's almost 5,000 times in an hour. And most of us don't think too much about that physical heart. It beats and the beat goes on. And that would have been me until about eight months ago. And that is when in the early hours, about 1230 in the morning at Northwest Regional Hospital, a nurse looked at me and said, uh, you are having a heart attack. And I was like, wow, this isn't good. But um, since that time, and I won't go into all the details, but since that time, I've tried to take, uh, pay attention to that uh, issue, trying to take care of myself, because it's important, the physical heart. As I was preparing for this message, I found out that this past Thursday, September 29th, was World Heart Day. Did anybody know that? You didn't celebrate World Heart Day? Well, we'll celebrate for just a moment here. The World Heart Heart Day, the Heart Association, says there are four important factors to keeping a healthy heart. The first one, and in respect for World Heart Day, we'll go through these. You need to stop smoking or don't start smoking. That's a big issue. Secondly, exercise. Spend time in exercise. He's trying. Third, cut down as much as possible on the stress in your life. The stress that you we all feel. Try to stay off of I-95. Eat a healthy diet. That's a hard one. Eat a healthy diet. Now, the physical aspect of our heart is not what the Bible is referring to. And in your bulletin, you can write this in. According to the Bible... The heart is the core or center of our being. The heart is the center of our being. And there are many different functions that would be associated with that. But I'm just going to mention four, but they're not limited to these four. So what does the heart involve? Well, it involves the intellect. It involves the intellect as we think with our heart. We know that God points this out in Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So that's a function of the heart. The second one, which is most clearly understood in our society, is the emotion the heart invokes. The emotion. Now, because the world most easily identifies with this trait, we have an abundance of popular songs that mention the heart. In fact, there are hundreds of them. I didn't know this, but I thought I would just go through the list, and you can, you can identify with the one that applies to you, because these are for decades in all kind of genres. I don't know many of these. I'm not endorsing these, but if you clap, then we know you recognize it. You may remember Young at Heart. I believe that was Frank Sinatra. Totally crypts of the heart. Don't go breaking my heart. In response, I'll never break your heart. Heartbreak Hotel, your cheating heart. 
I believe that's the country version. Heartache tonight. Every beat of my heart. Stop. This is my favorite one. I don't know it. Stop dragging my heart. Sheer heart attack. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Put a little love in your heart. I know that one. An achy, breaky heart. So, did you notice any of those? Do you remember those? Were you singing any of them to yourself? Okay. That's because songs that are from the heart touch our emotions. The Bible refers to this also. Proverbs fifteen thirteen. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. We feel emotion from that part of our being. We also know the heart is a place of understanding. A heart of a place of understanding. Isaiah six ten. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. We have understanding in our hearts and return and be healed. That's what Isaiah's prayer was. Finally, but not the end, but the end of our list, we find volition. The heart makes decisions. It's a decision-making process in our heart. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, A man's heart plans his ways, making decisions, but the Lord directs his steps. The final characteristic we must acknowledge about the heart is found in Jeremiah 17.9. It's not what people, in a popular sense, understand about the heart, but it's vital to our worldview, how we're going to respond to people, how we're going to raise our children, and how we conduct ourselves. We must understand the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That's your heart. That's my heart. That's the heart of every individual because we're born into sin. We are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And that's the reason we need a new heart. A heart that desires God. A heart such as the heart of David. What does that heart look like? There are many qualities that we can see in Scripture and in David's life. One that I didn't put on the list, but it's pretty obvious. He had a courageous heart. He, was a, he had a heart of passion. He had a heart of love for God. But I believe one characteristic stands out above all the others. In fact, it's exclusive to David himself. But we see, if we go back to 1 Samuel 13, when we first see that God is not pleased with Saul, and God prompts Samuel to tell Saul this bad news. And here's what he said, But now your kingdom to Saul shall not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's what David is known for, a man after God's own heart. He had the same heart as God, or he strived to. And that's a unique statement that God anointed and approved in David's life. To be known as a man seeking God's heart. To have the mind seeking to know God's will and to follow God with a passion. A heart that is completely God's. We sang that this morning. Here's my heart, Lord. And he wants all of it. Now, what would it look like if we gave God our heart and we were a person after God's heart? I believe the number one 
result would be a compliant heart. You can write that in your notes, a compliant heart. The word compliant just means obedient, that you're obeying God. As we contrast Saul's heart, we look back to chapter 15. And remember, God condemns Saul by saying in chapter 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. There are many examples of obedience in David's life, but if we just look in these chapters, I've chosen several that are that stand out. Notice several, and these would apply to all of us. The first one, how should we be obedient? Be obedient in the trivial. Be obedient in the small things, in the small matters. David is anointed king in this chapter at the very beginning. But what occurs after this anointing? He goes back to his job as a shepherd. A lowly job. A position without status and without recognition. But we know he was faithful. Several of his brothers, we find out in the next chapter, are going off to war. Something considered greatly important. And what does he do? He goes back and he obeys the command of his father and does a wonderful job in this lowly job. There is a lesson and encouragement for all of us in that. Be obedient in the smallest of circumstances. Be obedient in the smallest things that you are called to do in life. It also says that God takes notice of those who are diligent in the matter of small things. Students that are here this morning... It confirms what your teachers tell you when they say, do your best, show your work, give me the details, do your homework with a thorough preparation, not to just rush through it. Because if you learn to apply yourself in those important areas of the small things, greater achievements will follow. To every employee, it says to pay attention to detail and do it right. Do it right. Here's a, here's a sign that was in an auto body shop. It says, if you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? Now, the first person that I found on the Internet that said that was Albert Einstein, a man of detail. Coach John Wooden, who coached UCLA to 12 national titles, picked up that saying as well. Be obedient in trivial matters. And we deal with trivial matters all day long, do we not? That's part of life. Learn to do it with the best that I can do. Be compliant in the trivial matters. The second thing I would say is obedience in trying matters. In trying matters. Trying circumstances. Be what God wants you to be in the trials of life. In the trials of life, we all have trials in life. David, according to many scholars, was a, was a teenager, maybe 15, 16, not much older than that, when this event occurred, when he was anointed king. And even after he killed Goliath, for at least the next 10, 12 years, he was, he was besought with trial after trial, running from King David, who was trying to kill him. Now, I know we all have trials, but is anyone in here worried about someone killing them? No. I don't see any hands. 
So we may have trials, but David faced that for years. The most powerful person in the land trying to kill him. So much of, uh, much of what we learn in life is learned through trials. God allows his children to endure many hardships and trials. It's a part of life. It's certainly a part of all of our Christian lives because de- God designed it to be that way, to endure trials. And um, this past year has been one of quite a few challenges in our family, uh, a year of difficulty. And some of you here this morning, you're aware of some of these things that have occurred in, in our lives personally. But it's not important that I share those specifics with you. Not that I don't think you care. I know many of you are praying, but the reason why is that because in this room, in this body of Christ, we are replete with trials. Every one of you are either facing a trial or you have endured a trial or you're going to begin a trial. There are individuals and families who are dealing with a host of trials. It could be disease, death of a loved one, Financial loss, disappointment, loss of employment, loss of a relationship, loss with a spouse, a breakup, family issues, false accusations, and on and on the list may go. And I would, I would be confident in saying that all those things are part of this body of Christ. The list is not even that important because it's common to man. What is important is that we are obedient in those trying times, that we learn to trust God. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's one of the purposes for trials, that we will have our faith grow and that it will become precious. Another reason that we endure trials is so that we can comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, The God of all comfort who comfort us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. That's an eloquent way of saying, As you suffer, remember that and encourage others who go through suffering as well. That's what we're called to do as the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says something really amazing to me. This is Paul writing. He says, for our light affliction. Let's stop right there. Paul said, what I am going through is kind of a light situation. Really? He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was run out of town. He was almost killed several times. He dealt with all the problems of all the churches, and he calls this a light affliction, which is but for a moment. That's kind of hard to understand also, just for a moment. Why? Because Paul is looking at it through the lens of eternity. Whatever you're going through is light and is short. If you look at it through the eyes of eternity. Why? Because it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What Paul was saying is that the future that we have with Christ far outweighs any of the trials that we are going to face. Let's hurry on to the third point 
in obedience. Obedience in the tedious. In the tedious. Now that's similar to trivial, but a little bit different connotation. Tedious carries the thought of doing something over and over that can be boring, but needs to be done. Can cause one to be weary, but it needs to be done. It could be the yard work that you do, men. The grass grows right back, doesn't it? You pull the weeds, they come back. It could be the pile of laundry that you're doing. It never ends. It could be taking care of a small child. On and on and on. You have things that are tedious that you get tired of doing. And I thought about many things in life that can be that way. But I see one point in David's life, and I don't want you to take it wrong but is reflected in the skill that David had in playing the harp. That was a tedious process. That's why you don't know very many people that can play the harp. It's a very difficult instrument. This man right here can play many instruments. Can you play the harp, sir? No, he cannot play the harp. Becky Merriweather can play the harp. We got to hear that for several years, but it's difficult. It's a skill that David had to practice. Now, I'm sure that he found pleasure in playing the harp, but playing any musical instrument takes practice. How many of you have that ability? You can play a musical instrument. You're going to help yourself in life because you will learn to deal with the tedious. My parents had this vision that I was going to be a musician. That was pretty funny. But I took piano lessons for about three months. I got through about two of the books. You learn the books. The best song that I remember is, Here We Go, Up a Row to a Birthday Party. That's the whole song. I can still play it on the piano. And, uh, but that wasn't for me, especially when my parents said this. It was like a dream come true. If you're not going to practice, baseball season had just started. If you're not going to practice, we're not going to pay for these lessons. Okay, that sounds good to me. But I regret that. I regret that. I many times think you should have stayed with that. Your life would be better. I'm not sure yours would be better because I was playing the piano because I don't know the difference between any of the notes uh, by, by the ear. But it is a good discipline. It's good to learn those things. And we're blessed by that. We heard some wonderful music today by talented people. But their talent only gets them so far. They have to come and practice. I'm sure that anything that we do is going to be tedious if we give our heart to it. Two questions. We mentioned the, the praise group. But all of us have a gift that God has given us that we are to be exercising in this body. It could be administration, serving on a board, teaching a Sunday school class, showing hospitality, serving, giving. The question is, what is your gift, and are you being obedient in that tedious practice. The final aspect of David's heart we see in chapter 17 is one of confidence. One of confidence. And that's uh, the area that we're going to look at in chapter 17. Chapter 17 provides us with the details of one of the most thrilling chapters in the Bible. And when I knew I was going to be speaking on this, I thought, that's great. That's a wonderful thing to be able to talk about, David and Goliath. But then my next thought was, but everybody's heard that. 
Yes, but we're going to look at it in light of these uh, characteristics of confidence. We know that the Philistines and the Israelites were constantly at war. They were arch enemies. And in this particular struggle, you have this giant that arises from Gath. And by the way, in the last year or so, they've made some amazing discoveries in archaeology in the city of Gath. It's for sure a place that existed. We know that from Scripture, but archaeology continues to find evidence for the Bible almost daily. It's an exciting time. But they found the city of Goliath. Well, Goliath is this tormenting figure to the Israelites. For 40 days, the Bible says for 40 days, twice a day he comes out with this uh, this, this edict to the people of the, the soldiers of the Israelis. He challenged them to send out a man to fight him. Well, that's not going to be a very fair fight. Goliath is nine and a half feet tall. You've never seen a picture of anyone that big. I don't know on record if there's any individual that's been that tall. But he was nine and a half feet tall. His armor alone weighed 200 pounds. His spear weighed 25 pounds. And surprisingly enough, no one wanted to even think about fighting him. Not Saul. Who was he? He was supposed to be the leader. He was looking around for somebody else to do it. And more to the point, none of David's three brothers who were in the army wanted any part of Goliath. Well, as the story goes, and you know, Jesse sends David to take supplies to his brothers and to the commanders of the army. And David obeys and shows up just as Goliath is making his daily speech. Send out a man to fight me. I defy your army and I defy your God. Look at verse 23. As he talked with them, this is David, behold the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke, the same words as before. And David heard him. In my Bible, I had this note. This is the turning point of the story. David heard him. This little shepherd guy hears this, and he's greatly offended. He takes it very personal. He cannot understand while everybody's hiding in their tent. He says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This guy is out here disrespecting you and disrespecting our God. And David takes this in and with confidence, not in himself, but he says, I can fight this guy. Now, we know what, he, what, what happened with his brother. There's this, ex, there's this exchange, and Eliab says, what are you doing here? Don't you have a few sheep to watch? And David wisely ignores him. But here's the deal. David was offended because God's holiness had been offended. Confidence in God. He had confidence in God's holiness. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy 
the armies of the living God. David was not confident in himself, but he was confident and recognized the holiness of God was being attacked and being disrespected. And here's what I would submit to you. We see that happening daily in our lives. People disrespecting the holiness of our God. The God that we commemorated a few moments ago, that we said, we do this in remembrance of you. And I'm not saying how that will play itself out in all circumstances, but we should be offended because God's holiness is being attacked around us. It is evident that the holiness of God is under attack. How will we respond? David was confident that God would protect him because David was standing up for God's name. And eventually Saul hears of this. And David makes his way to Saul and says, I'll fight this guy. All right? You need some armor. No, that's your armor. I'm not comfortable with that. And then he ends up taking his sling and five stones. And before he does that, he reminds himself and everyone around him that he has confidence in God's faithfulness. He's confident in God's holiness. He's confident in God's faithfulness. As he's having this conversation, why would he be confident? He has already killed a lion and a bear. Now give that some thought. I know that there's some pretty tough guys in the cage wrestling, but they're not fighting lions and bears. This was a teenager, and here's what's also pretty amazing. I don't think anybody else knew this. I'm not even sure he had told anyone in his family about this. These were events that David had stored in his memory. We, too, must take note of God's faithfulness to meet our needs in times past. Have we not all seen God work? Can you think of times in your life that God has provided for you? That God has shown himself true? Of course we can. In this very church, we can think of specific things that God has blessed us with. And I know we have a hurricane somewhere out there. I'm praying it doesn't come this way, but we had one that came this way. And God was faithful. And we have a beautiful building. And God provided. And on and on. I could talk about many circumstances in this school that I have to remind myself of constantly. Yes, you need a teacher. No, you don't know who that is. But you have hundreds of people that have come here to teach in the past. In our families, God has provided for us in great and in abundant ways. Food, clothing, shelter, health, friends, and on and on it goes. But when we are faced with a new challenge, what is usually our response? Many times it's fear. It's doubt. Is God going to be with me? Is he going to be a part of this? God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Is that not true? Is it a true statement? God will not leave us or forsake us. That is true. Now, where that leads us, I don't know. It may lead us to a graveside. It may lead us 
to heaven. I understand that. But whatever we face, we must have confidence in God's faithfulness. He will be faithful to us. He is faithful to us. The final confidence David exhibited is found in verses 46 and 47. In God's deliverance. God's deliverance. Here's what he said. This day the Lord will deliver you. He's talking to Goliath now as he runs toward him. Into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of all the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David makes an alarming statement because he has confidence in God's deliverance. The battle is the Lord's. We could talk quite a bit about that little speech, but that stands out to me. He recognized that the battle is the Lord's. What is your philosophy this morning? Are you trying to fight your own battles? For David, on that day, it wasn't much of a battle. He ran toward Goliath. He let that stone go, and it sunk into the forehead of Goliath. I don't think Goliath was there then. Uh, dead at that point. And he goes over and he takes his huge sword. And I think the, the Goliath was somewhat aware of it. He just chopped off his head. That was the end of the fight. The Philistines fled. By the way, they didn't keep their word. Remember, they were supposed to be servants. No, they took off. And the, the Israelites uh, pursued them. And the great thing is that we're still telling that story today. We're still telling that story of God's faithfulness. And it's a true story. David takes the head of Goliath everywhere he ran. Read the rest of the chapter. He's got it in his tent. He goes and he stands before Saul and he's holding the head of Goliath. That'd be pretty cool. They didn't have Facebook, but I guarantee you, everybody in Israel knew that story. What's the story for us today? The final thought I would say about the matter of the heart is what is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart this morning? Only you know that. Only you and God. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong to who? On behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Where's your heart today? Would you bow in prayer? Would you bow your heads in prayer? There may be one here today. You have never been given a new heart by God. The only reason would be because you haven't asked him. It's a simple matter to recognize that you're a sinner. That you need a savior. That you need forgiveness. Would you accept today what Jesus did on the cross for you? Would you come and accept and receive a new heart, a clean heart? There may be some of you here this morning, you have a new heart, but you need a little bit of heart surgery this morning. God needs to work in your heart. You need to give God all of your heart. You need to pursue others with a heart for God. You need to pursue the lost. You need to have a heart for others in this body.